You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. This episode is entitled, A Green Gospel, Good News for All Creation. I've been wanting to do this for a while now and really want to write a book about this at some stage, but that's well down the track. Uh, it's inspired by a recent conversation I had with somebody where I was told both that I had swapped the gospel for climate change and that I did not have a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, to be sure, my prayer life is not the most organized, but still. For some years, I have been keen to articulate a theology that is inclusive of all creation but one does not fall that does not fall into the trap of what C.S. Lewis called Christianity and. In his Screwtape Letters, Lewis sees the distinction from pure Christianity and the introduction of issues such as feminism, pacifism, and so on. He portrays these as add-ons. Now, of course, we can put our agendas in front of God's, but the point is to understand what the central drama of the Bible is that Jesus fulfills. Once you do that, you see a much broader concept of the gospel than, quote, me and Jesus, and there is no and. All things fit under the rubric of the gospel. So it's a matter of emphasis. A few things worth making clear first. Like it or not, Christianity is a missionary religion. The gospel literally means good news and is something to be announced or proclaimed. The Great Commission of Matthew 28 tells us that the central task of the church is to make disciples of Jesus. Now, this task has been turned into colonialism, imperialism, and has come at great cost to other cultures, as it has been uh, in practice an exercise of westernization. The church has proclaimed a white Jesus in a suit and tie, and often it would seem a good capitalist to boot. But whether you are an exclusivist, inclusivist, or a universalist, there is no getting around the fact that it's in the DNA of the church to tell people about Jesus. We must just stop being an asshole about it. Forgive me if that's an offensive word. But what I've just described, I think, is more offensive. Now, not all are evangelists, but denying that Christians bear the name of Christ and that we should be saying something about him, well... On the other hand, the logocentrism, that is the word focus, of evangelicalism also needs to be challenged. Now it is true that the gospel is a message to be proclaimed, as I've said, but it is also one that needs to be embodied. If, for example, you identify the central theme of the Bible, or the biblical narrative, as divine sacrificial love, 
to reconcile all things to God, you have something tangible to live out. Now, there's a phrase that's been falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that goes something like, Go forth and proclaim the gospel. If necessary, use words. Logocentrists make the gospel to be merely a meme to share, forgetting both our need to earn the right to speak, particularly in a post-colonial, pluralistic world where sex scandals and collusions with capitalism have tarnished the church. But disciple-making also means a way of life, an obedience to the master, and not just, quote, a Jesus-my-boyfriend-a-girlfriend-style relationship as much as we are not just disciples, but friends of Christ as well. We're to speak the good news, we're to be the good news, to embody it. But we are to speak it. But which good news? And this is one of my key points. I think there's three levels of the gospel. And we need to be clear about what we mean when we say gospel. Now, the first refers to the way in which we package it. And that's the so-called tract approach. I mean, you probably all heard gospel tracts at some point. I was converted, or brought close, if you will, in my understanding about what the gospel meant by one particular uh, tract. And looking back, of course, I see it's incomplete. I'll talk about more, that, more about that in a second. So whether it's two ways to live, which Australians would be quite familiar with because it was originated here, or the four spiritual laws, or the one that was involved in my conversion, the bridge to life, these things are not the gospel itself. They're not to be confused with it. They are ways of explaining the gospel that come in culturally conditioned packages. Now, this is not to deny their utility or that they contain aspects of the gospel. Indeed, enough for people to come to faith. But of course, surely the Spirit can use anything. Nonetheless, they're useful. However, when I look, for example, at the bridge to life, I see nothing that affirms the goodness of creation, or nothing that uh, affirms the, the goodness of the image of God on human beings. For my own personal bias, I see way too much of penal substitutionary atonement as pretty much the only model of the way the cross works in it. I see nothing on community or church, what it means to be part of the people of God. And I see a rather obvious and blatant statement of heavenism. That is to say, going to heaven when you die, rather than a resurrection life. Or what Tom Wright calls life after, life after death. The gospel, if you will, is equated with an afterlife parachute, to use um, an oft-use critique or an afterlife insurance policy and there's also a whiff of eternal conscious punishment that of course is a topic too big to discuss here and now now i thought i wouldn't like two ways to live but when i flicked through it there were some aspects i really liked now it begins with divine rule so god is in charge and that's certainly a picture in Genesis 1, straight off the bat. But straight away also, I get a sense of a particular view of divine rulership and initial goodness. Uh, Two Ways to Live gets that sin affects society as well as the individual. Again, everlasting ruin implies a God who lets people suffer forever, which we are told is giving people what they asked for. 
But knowing where this trap comes from, it's a little bit dishonest to put it in this way, given the underlying predestinarian theology. Again, a matter for another time. There is a lot to value in this version, but there's an asymmetry in that while the effects of sin on society is highlighted, there appears to be no redemption of society itself mentioned, just the individual. At least it does talk about the family of God, that is the church, and of course no tract is perfect, and no tract can say everything. But I think maybe it points to the limited use or value in gospel tracts or these kinds of summaries. And sharing the gospel is not just about those conversations that you have passing in the corridor or during our week at university anymore. It's, it's about an ongoing conversation. Of course, it always has been, but anyway, I'm not trying to be overly picky, but how we represent the gospel is important. Hence the, the whole point of this podcast, right? Uh, then what's my second level? Well, that's the various statements of the gospel in the New Testament. Now, these can be individual statements of Jesus. For example, Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I think this verse has been misused quite a bit. Um, I don't know, no time to go into that. The way in which it's been uh, applied in particular uh, theories of atonement that I don't think it's saying. Another example um, of the gospel now by Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 is the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a pretty tight summary, I think. Um, obviously claiming that this is something that was well accepted in the church, uh, talks about the incarnation implicit and talks about salvation, which is what the gospel is about after all, saving sinners. But it doesn't say everything. It can't. It's just one verse. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he goes on to talk about it post-resurrection appearances. So this is gospel in the terms of... Um, a narrative, a set of events that happened, and some level of interpretation. So Christ died, but Christ died for sins. And that's in accordance with the Hebrew Bible. And that he was buried and he was raised on the third day, again in accordance with the Hebrew Bible. Now, what that means, given there's no statement about resurrection of the Messiah, really, in the Hebrew Bible, is, is Paul his complete transformation in his understanding of what the Hebrew Bible was about by encountering the risen Christ. But that's a nice, another version of the gospel. Each of these statements talks about salvation, but not precisely the same thing. And not, as I said, not everything can be said. So be wary of reducing the gospel without remainder to one verse. And the third category is the gospels themselves. These accounts of the life of Jesus. And when you consider the gospels as a whole to be a gospel and not just a little bit about the cross, perhaps, but the entire content, you're forced to ask questions of things like, is the Sermon on the Mount just a statement of Jesus' perfection, because after all, we can't keep it, and hence purely a prelude to the cross, because Jesus is perfect and therefore he can die for sins? Or is it a way of ensuring that we, quote, stay on the bus, stay saved until we die? Or is it an example of kingdom ethics, the good news of the gospel embodied? The reality lived in, 
Likewise, what difference does it make to our understanding of the gospel that John begins, this is the fourth gospel, named after John, begins with echoes of Genesis 1 and ends with echoes of Genesis 2. So the initial creation story and then the garden story. And has several si seven signs rather matching the seven days of creation, the seven Jewish festivals, which tied agricultural harvests with events in Israel's history. In other words, if you read the Gospels, uh, read the Gospel as the Gospels, what does that include uh, that our assumptions of what the Gospel contains end up excluding? So let me say that again because that might be a bit confusing. We have ideas of what the Gospel is. When we come to the Gospels, what do they include that we might exclude from our simple Gospel tracts or understanding? Now, it's sometimes said that creation is not mentioned very often in the Bible, but that's not really true. It's assumed that God is creator, that humans live in the creation, and the whole point of resurrection theology is that creation itself has a future. Now, even if we only had resurrection theology for humans, this would suggest a physical reality in the future. However, the fact that we have theology for the renewal of creation in the Gospels, as well as the Epistles, should put to death any idea that the New Testament spiritualizes the expectations of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. That's to confuse, I think, what spiritual means in the first place. What it does is finally deal with the evil behind the quotidian evil we see in the world, that is, sin, the world, and the devil. I think I've said enough on this for now. What I want to do in the second half of the program is articulate one version, a draft version, of a gospel message that is more inclusive while retaining um, the elements which typical presentations have. There should be no dichotomy between a personal relationship with God and the discipling relationship of student with master, or between saving the saving of human beings from sin and the renewing of creation from human destruction. The cross and resurrection encompass all of these things. So this version won't be tracked like it's a, an extended description or, or summary. Trying to ape, if you will, Scott McKnight's The King Jesus Gospel, where he takes a whole chapter to explain what he thinks about the gospel, summarizing both testaments. The cross and resurrection encompass all these things, as I've said. Okay, yeah, I'm repeating myself. Um, and I don't have time to cross-reference everything I, I take from the Bible, but the astute listener will hear... Um, the sorts of things I'm, I'm referring to. And of course, it won't be tight. This is the first draft. I've banged it out in the past couple of hours. Uh, it's off the top of my head. It's a draft of a say. Uh, and this podcast is a safe place to try new ideas. So here is one. And after the break, you'll hear my first attempt. Welcome back, and here is my green gospel. Good news for all creation. The world in which we live is full of wonder and delight. As far as we know, our planet is the only one in which life is found. It's said that wood is more valuable than diamonds, 
for while both are made of carbon, wood is far rarer. Our universe is nearly 14 billion years old, according to science, our Earth about one-third of this. The immensity of what we observe causes us to ponder our own significance. Some scientists and philosophers will claim that we are totally insignificant. Yet there are those who think otherwise. It seems ludicrous, given the claims of evolution, that humans are more important than other animals, or significant at all. But here we are, pondering the beauty around us. Why do we find beauty in what appeared in other animals purely to attract a mate of their own kind? Or is the result of mindless geological forces? Why do we think some things are fair or unfair if only chance rules? And why is it that humans are the ones having these conversations? Why is it us threatening the future of the planet? Why do we make rules we do not keep? Science gives us stories to understand the world around us, threading together observations about the world into theories, often coherent, but inevitably incomplete. Religion arises out of the shared experience of humans and the desire to make sense of the world that transcends bald facts. Yet the claim is also about the more than human world. Uh, about more than the human world, that is, but of a world that transcends and intersects our own. The test is whether it makes sense of what we see. The stories of the people of ancient Israel speak of a God who made a world of rich variety of wonder and delight. It pictures humans with a special responsibility to manage the world well. Yet this world is not ours, it is God's. We have no license to do what we like, but care for it in love, for God and for our neighbours in space and time. The earth itself is not to labour forever under us, and the other creatures have a right to exist and flourish independently of us. The Jews understood themselves to be at the centre of a special mission to bring this kind of order to the world, to keep back the forces of chaos. Chaos was released by human evil and violence. There was a close connection between human society and the natural world. Human violence can affect the world in catastrophic ways. Humans make rules and break them. God places limits on the world and humans try to exceed them. We mistake what it means to be like God with being God. We forget our finitude, our ignorance, and seek omnipotence. To be finite is not a sin, but to think we are is. Now, sin is an ugly word for many. Call it evil, call it immorality. In our heart of hearts, we know that individuals do things they know they should not. That whole societies or groups of humans can go bad. Sometimes this takes on a life of its own. So much so, we use the language of demonic or diabolical. Perhaps this is more than mere metaphor. The human merges with the other than human, evil embodied. Now Israel had their law, but at the bottom of it was meant to be love, for God and for neighbours. Sometimes they extended this love to people of other nations, Sometimes they did not. Their relationships with the surrounding nations were complex. Being led astray and away from their God by them, or being captured and oppressed by them. Loving those who treat you poorly seems like a stupid idea, 
but God had more in mind. This politically oppressed people kept ignoring the God they said loved them, kept having an each-way bet. It did not go well for them. They longed for what we all long for, peace, prosperity. They wanted to worship their God in their land and enjoy its fruits. And then came Jesus. To say that Jesus said he was God is a little too simple. He taught with authority in a way that other Jewish leaders of Israel's law did not. He did things that made people ask who he was. He identified with the God of Israel's purposes and claimed he came to fulfill all that Israel was meant to be and do. His followers ended up identifying him as equal to God, being the same as God, but not being exactly the same God. Add to that the Spirit of God who speaks, inspires and enlivens us, and we have a brain-bending but important idea of the Trinity. God who is three in one, relationship within God, a dynamic of love, love personified. Jesus also claimed to be the solution for the problem of human sin and evil. The waywardness of human society, the world, and the underlying spiritual powers we might call the devil. Now, crucifixion was the execution technique of choice for the Romans who invaded countries, slaughtered their armies, taxed the people into submission, and enslaved them. Crucifixion was for those who resisted. Yet Jesus did not resist violently. The cross, or his death on the cross, was the result of him non-violently resisting the religious and political powers of the day. He challenged the rigidity and exclusion that they had, um, that the, the religious leadership had, had become or embodied. He undermined their institutions. The earthly power of empire he showed to be empty. Jesus' cross is understood in various ways as being punished for wrongdoing so that others do not have to, and defeating the powers of the world that placed him there. It is seen as an act of reconciliation and love. Yet, all these things make no sense if Jesus simply died a martyr. Now, the New Testament speaks unashamedly, and in a world, first century world, where many regarded the body as a prison, of Jesus being raised by God to a new bodily existence. Not a mere resuscitation, like those that happen on an operating table, but a new and fuller experience of being alive that brings with it all of what came before. The empty tomb says that death is also defeated. Death is not the final word. Entropy does not win, and neither did the powers of sin, evil, and human empires. The cross points to something new. In the Gospels, Jesus is described as both the agent of the creation of all things and the model human being who was to represent God in the world and care for it, a new Adam. His death and rising is meant to reconcile all things to God. And this includes 
individuals and messed up societies and institutions and the natural world. The book of Revelation says that Jesus wants to make all things new. This is not just about a private spiritual life, although it includes this, or just about being a good person by any measure you can apply, though it is also about this. This is about being change makers, revolutionaries, peacemakers, dreamers, visionaries. You see, Jesus had a vision for a better world. He led a revolution against power, changed and changes human hearts, and made peace between humans and God. The call then is this. Do you want to live a life where you follow your own happiness alone? Think that you have it all sorted out and that you make your own destiny? Or do you see in Jesus a God who shows us how life can look? How all desires to seek God can be brought into a way to God? All the bits of truths tied up into the truth? All our dying brought together in life? In Jesus love of God and neighbour is demonstrated and made possible. In Jesus, a new creation begins. While God makes this new creation, while Jesus conquers the chaos of sin and evil, the Spirit moves within to renew our hearts and minds, but also over the earth to make all things new. We are invited into this mission. If the world that God made was very good, then the one that is coming, this world made new, will be amazing. And we all have a role in this evolving beauty. Every act of kindness, act of justice, every word that gives life, every healing touch, every act of faith and of hope, these things are beautiful. They are art. They are acts of creation and not destruction acts of love and not apathy. It is our love letter to the world. To be part of this movement just requires two things. Firstly, confess that Jesus is the one in charge. God come into the world with skin on. Secondly, believe that the tomb is empty, that every sin, including yours, has been dealt with, and that death has no ultimate power. Then the work of becoming a new human being in a world being made new, begins. As I said, that's a, um, a really quick draft knocked out in a couple of hours in between watching uh, Tour de France and uh, replays of the sumo competition in, in Japan at the moment. It tells you a bit about my life and distractions. And it's very, very incomplete and it's quite loose and I was correcting my my typos and incomplete sentences as I went. But you get the general vibe that what I want to describe is not a replacement of the traditional gospel with an idea that we work to fight climate change or habitat destruction, but that if you look at the full scope of scripture, it tells a story about um, the God who creates is also the God who saves. That human sin and evil corrupts everything and therefore 
that the undoing of the impact of well, the undoing of human sin, the solving of the problem of the the journey to be a moral creature, the journey to make sense of life in this amazing universe, all these things, our existential angst, the ways in which we go wrong, is all wrapped up and dealt with in the cross. So reaching back and trying to see the broadest possible understanding of what the atonement means embodied in the resurrection, but that all along God was caring for everything. It's human beings who fall short of the glory of God. It's human beings who make uh, mistakes. It's human beings that are doing damage. But God's love is not for human beings alone. The way in which God's love is achieved was becoming a human being and working to renew human beings as part of a process of renewing all things, restoring us to our position of responsibility. There's lots of things that could be articulated, um, but you can see how I've tried to encapsulate some of the, the scientific narrative as well. And there's a, there's a hint um, of, um, you know, a nod towards, you don't just don't treat all human religions as completely and utterly evil, but they encapture, encapsulate elements of the truth. And a, if I'd had more time, I'd have thought more about colonialism and so on in the context I sit in Australia, where Aboriginal peoples see the, the dreaming to use a phrase, is, is their Old Testament, but to see its fulfillment in Jesus. But anyway, it's a beginning, it's a start of, of a conversation and thinking about this. So there you are. Hopefully that was of some value. And um, as I continue to develop that, hopefully something more fruitful and useful comes out of it. For those of you who continue to sit through my ravings, thank you for listening. And as always, God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.